Hoping to solve the issue of the bedroom shuffle whenever they have a visitor, the girls are remodeling the garage into a guest room, but it's going about as well as their bathroom construction project, so they'll need to find someone to help. While Blanche, Dorothy, and Sophia are busy with the construction, Rose is dealing with her own issues, like how her boyfriend Al has become a big old lump of boring since his retirement. Will Rose be able to help Al find some excitement in his life? Will the girls get the garage turned into the guest room of their dreams? Will that man ever get rescued after falling off the boat? All of that and more in today's episode, Rose's Big Adventure. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. Hold on to your butts because we're zooming into the garage at a breakneck pace. Speaking of breaking necks, Dorothy, in one of her multi-neutral colored off-center tops, is ready to break the neck of their lousy, thieving contractor. Sophia, in her dark green and blue checkered dress and green cardigan, is so upset she compares the tragedy of what's happening in their garage to that of the 1929 St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. Gathering in a garage, members of the Irish Northside gang were shocked when two police officers crashed their party, forcing the men to line up on a wall. The officers, who were actually hitmen in disguise, shot and killed the seven men. Perhaps Sophia should chat with Rocco about what his buddy Al Capone was up to around that time, as it's suspected he might have been involved. Well, maybe it's Rocco who should be talking to her, since it sounds like her alibi of being at the movies all day is a little sketchy. Before Sophia can incriminate herself any further, she is saved by Ernie, a suit and bad hair wearing contractor who is more worried about his suit than the lady's needs. Cue Blanche, looking adorable in a light blue blouse, darker blue sweater, and a little blue headband, barely visible through her perm's vivacious curls. And she needs Ernie to get serious about the task at hand. They are sick of sharing beds when family comes to visit, and they want this room completed. Ernie is being played by Don Woodward, who did do some extras acting through the 80s, but is known more as a writer and producer. After acting on shows like New Heart, Mama's Family, and Perfect Strangers, he moved on to writing for shows like Family Guy and Just Shoot Me. Ernie hears their complaints, but it takes time to complete work like this. So he asks Blanche, does she want it fast or good? Hearing how Blanche could easily take this as an offer, not a question, Sophia chimes in to point out, the question was about the work. As Blanche snickers Sophia's jokes off, Dorothy is utilizing her all-powerful mother-slash-teacher index finger, pointing it upside down, which is the equivalent of holding a gun sideways, so you know things are serious. She lays down the gauntlet. Ernie can either take this job seriously, or he can take a hike. When he tries to argue that dumping him would be a mistake because there are so many terrible contractors in town, it backfires when Dorothy says, yeah, like you. 
Hoping to salvage the relationship, Blanche giggles her way over to Ernie, saying he shouldn't listen to Dorothy. She just woke up on the wrong side of a big, cold, empty, lonely, quiet, sad bed that day. Hearing that a lovely lady like Dorothy is single, Ernie is shocked. Sophia is horrified that a man they've hired for construction has that kind of taste level. Ouch. Taking off his new suit jacket, Ernie gets to work and the ladies get inside. Dorothy is pissed because she knows he's right. There aren't a lot of good contractors in Miami, so they're in essence over a barrel. This usually elicits a picture in your mind of someone being vulnerable with buns up or in a position of being figuratively screwed. Unless you're Blanche, who remembers the literal time she was put over a barrel by a man, to which Dorothy just can't physically respond. Dictionary.com tells us that the first use of being over a barrel was in 1938, and it wasn't about being in a bad position. Rather, it was in reference to when a drowning victim was pulled from waters and placed over a barrel. Then the barrel was rolled back and forth in an effort to get the water out of the lungs. Now, that's a fun fact. Do you have any stats on how well that worked? I do know that that's not done anymore, so I'm guessing not great. (laughs) Is that just because we have a lack of barrels? Yeah, you know, you don't really see beaches with barrels every 20 feet, you know. I think that would be a good inclination that it worked well. So I'm guessing it doesn't. Bring back the barrel. (laughs) Bring back the barrel. I do hear there's a lifeguard shortage, so barrels. The ultimate lifeguard. Should we start a barrel lifeguard company? We provide barrels. Barrels and little red shorts? Yes. And a whistle. (laughs) Yeah. A nasty look has never stopped Blanche before, so she goes on about her time at a kegger down at the marina. Before we get to hear the rest of her sordid tale, Dorothy stops her, pointing out that Rose and a man are busy canoodling on the couch. Please forward your fan fiction regarding Blanche's time at the keg party to alwaysbemysisters at gmail.com. In all shiny blue, Rose and her all-tan-wearing beau, Al, are sipping champagne, celebrating Al's retirement from owning a deli. He sold everything, locks, stock, and barrel. Sheesh, should this episode be called The One with All the Barrels? A joke that was hilarious when he told it yesterday is only mildly funny on its second run. Lox is a fillet of brined salmon which can be smoked. The first use of the term lock, stock, and barrel, meaning everything or the whole shebang, was, according to Grammarist, in a letter written by Sir Walter Scott way back in 1817. He wrote, quote, Like the high landman's gun, she wants stock, lock, and barrel to put her into repair. Any idea what old what's-his-name was talking about when he wrote those words down? don't know. Mm-mm. I could probably look into it, but I, I wonder didn't. if it, so- it sounded like, well, most things do. It sounded like sexual to me. It sounded like sex. Was Sir Walter Scott a sexy guy? Did he write sexy stuff? Name a Walter that isn't. <laughs> a very valid point. <laughs> My apologies to all the Walters. Playing Al is George Coe, who, besides being my birthday twin, was an award-nominated and winning actor of stage, screen, and voice. He started out on Broadway, acting alongside Angela Lansbury in the much-discussed Mame. His shows and films included Archer, The Stepford Wives, Moonlighting, Kramer vs. Kramer, The End of Innocence, Mighty Ducks, Magnum P.I., Funny People, Night Court, Transformers, Dark Side of the Moon, and, of course, La La. 
Super duper fun fact, he was one of the original not ready for primetime players appearing on the first and then only in a few episodes of Saturday Night Live. My wife. I think I'll stuff her. As everyone tries to recover from Al's hilarity, Dorothy inquires as to his big plans now that he's a free man. Starting Monday, he'll sleep in. After Monday, thanks to help from Rose, we learn it will be Tuesday. Oh man, this duo is a real crack up. Not having plans is part of Al's retirement. It's a new start to a new chapter, and he's excited to see where it will lead him. With a little smooch for Rose and a gaggle of goodbyes from the girls, he heads out, leaving Rose to swoon about how sweet, special, and now available Al is. Rose then confesses that she thinks she's falling in love with him. He's wonderful and kind, and he thinks Rose is as good of a catch as one of the swimming pepperonis. Curious how sincere Rose in retelling what Al has said, Dorothy asks if the whole neater-than-hard salami was actually said out loud. It was, and it was during a time that Rose was handling Al's sausage. So she probably shouldn't have told the girls, but she can't help it. She's gone full Buddy the Elf. I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. As they all continue enjoying their champagne, Ellen comes in from the kitchen. Don't put your finger in there, honey. Only now. I've done this lots of times. Apologies. That wasn't Ellen bursting in. It's Ernie. He's got his jacket back on, and now he's bursting through the living room, headed for the door. Confused, the girls ask him what the hell he means by leaving. He just got there and couldn't have possibly completed anything, but he promises he'll be back the next day. Exhausted by all of this horse pucky, Dorothy, inspired by the 1975 to 1989 soap opera that featured stars like Yasmin Bleeth and Christian Slater, ABC's Ryan's Hope, Dorothy whips out the finger again, telling Ernie if he leaves now, he won't be welcomed back. Which is fine by him, so he Stop smothering me! <laughs> With another contractor out the door, Blanche announces they have two options. Try to win Ernie back, or try to find someone new. There's always Sophia's option. With a joke about stereotypical Italian problem solving, she suggests they burn the garage to the ground, get the insurance money, and buy a house at the beach. Which, um, Sophia, that is insurance fraud. With no decision made, the ladies keep working on their champagne until we transition to the next day when we find Dorothy in the kitchen making her way through the contractors in the phone book. With a white-collared shirt under a purple sweater adorned with white spots and glittered threads, she gets into an expression off with the guy on the other line. When he counters her unwillingness to pay his price, he reminds her that she'll get what she pays for. She reminds him she's not interested in being the proverbial sucker that is born every minute. He responds with an idiom we aren't allowed to hear, I'm guessing because it too had something to do with sucking, based on Dorothy's uncomfortable reaction. In a white blouse and teal cardigan, Blanche is feeling hopeless. They've called every contractor and they can't find one that works for them. When all the calls have Dorothy feeling at a loss, cheerleader Blanche steps in and reminds her she has always gotten back on the horse. For example, she asks her to recall the many, many, many times she's been dumped by a man. But that doesn't make her stop dating. Rather, she not only keeps dating, but continues to lower her standards, dating less and less worthy men. And why? Blanche triumphantly, rhetorically asks. But Dorothy stops her, not wanting to hear any more about her poor dating choices. 
But that question wasn't actually rhetorical. Blanche literally wants to know, why does Dorothy do that to herself? Luckily, the tension is broken by a downtrodden Rose in a cream and baby blue argyle pattern sweater and blue undershirt. She's bummed because she's still seeing Al, but now that he's retired, they just sit around and do nothing. Dorothy suggests she talk to him about her feelings, which Rose thinks is a great idea. Speaking of great ideas, Sophia has joined the party and she has found someone to do the garage remodel. Excited, they all follow her out to the back slash garage slash pantry slash secret door. And there, in the garage, they are introduced to Vincenzo. Who is Vincenzo? Why, that's character actor Vito Scotti. As he was from Italy and had darker features, he was frequently typecast and put in the position of playing people from Mexico, Russia, and even Japan. Oh boy. Some of those roles were in productions like The Rifleman, Twilight Zone, Lassie, Dick Van Dyke, Adam's Family, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, The Man from Uncle, Wild Wild West, Ironside, The Monkeys, Flying Nun, Get Smart, Gilligan's Island, Hogan's Heroes, The Godfather, and as a voice in The Aristocats. If you're a fan of his, don't fret. He'll be back with the girls soon. As for why Vincenzo is in the garage, it's because he used to be one of the great European architects, and he's there to help with the remodel. When Sophia confirms his prior status with Vincenzo, he mumbles at her, humbly agreeing. Going on, Sophia shares, He's lost the swagger of his old days, and now he's just a pervy old dude who tries to violate women by looking up their skirts. Oh boy, Vinny. Concerned about her mother's disparaging words, Dorothy asks her to chill out. But it's okay. She can say whatever she wants to. Vin doesn't speak any English. To prove it, Sophia asks him if he's a wrinkled old pervert. With a laugh, he agrees. Which doesn't prove he doesn't speak English. He is a wrinkled old pervert. Realizing this frail man probably can't build anything, Blanche asks about the labor. Well, that's where they come in. Sophia's grand plan, after arson of course, is to have the Italian-speaking Vincenzo give the orders, Sophia will translate, and the girls will do the work. It's flawless. For those who know, let's keep the whole arson plan in the back of our minds for future episodes. Perhaps this is a habit of Sophia's. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Before they can agree on the deal, Dorothy is concerned about the cost. But there won't be any. After Vincenzo goes on in Italian, Sophia tells them he loves the work, he likes getting away from the center he lives at, and it's a delight to be in the company of pretty young girls. As the compliment sends Dorothy, Blanche, and Rose into shimmies of delight, Sophia continues, Oh, and here's the list of names he gave me of said girls that he would like to be spending his time with. Ding dong! It's a new evening and Rose is on the couch clearly waiting for a date in her shimmery champagne-colored skirt and light pink lace peplum blouse. I would like to stop here to have Coco discuss that outfit a little bit because he had some feelings while watching it. Which outfit? The champagne skirt and the pink peplum, they were kind of both shimmery, but had different patterns in them. And you said it was the worst thing she's ever worn. It made no sense to the eyes how those came to be together. I guess they're the same style of thing, the top and the bottom. Yeah. But no. (laughs) If one of them had been solid, maybe. Yeah. Yuck. It seemed like she... Well, I don't know. No, let it out. Let it, this is cathartic. We're all here to get through this together. 
maybe the costume designer had colitis that day. <laughs> or every day. And that would explain it. It was ugly, right? It was bad. Be gone outfit. Fashion, you know. Cast you uh, to to hell. <laughs> That's all there is to it. No other option. Whoosh, there's a big flame right there. <laughs> When Rose answers the door greeting Al in khakis, a blue shirt, and blue blazer, she acknowledges she may be too dressed up for the movies, but she doesn't care. She was desperate for any reason to get dolled up. Relatable, but I also don't really miss it. Speaking of going to the movies, Al is hoping that he can cancel their plans. He'd rather do what they did last night, which was sit around and watch TV. He's even gone so far as to check out the TV guide, and he saw that Moonlighting will be on. And it's an episode that has only been aired four times already. Coco, I was looking up why Moonlighting is, like, not around. And apparently it's due to music licensing. All that sexy jazz music? <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I it didn't too get, sexy. I didn't get through the full the article. But I guess a lot of older shows have that issue. So is For it like the, the musical score of the show or is it like like licensed music that was used in those I episodes? I believe it's licensed. I'm not positive, but I believe it's the licensing within it. So then it's like they're trying to stream it because it was ABC. So then it would be on Disney Plus, but maybe the music isn't allowed. Anyway, it's not even on DVD. Like you can't find Moonlighting, which is crazy. It's probably fine. But it's just strange that you'd have a hit show. And then you can't even watch it anywhere. I wonder if and Bruce it, Willis had something to do with that. Yeah, maybe. But it made his career, though. You would think he'd be I mean, yeah. pro having it. But yeah, it'd be interesting to watch now. It's like, is he a total creeper? But like, <laughs> I just remember being a kid and being like, I don't know what sexual tension is, but. But boy, I like it. Boy, do they have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's weird that we were both very into that show as young people. I don't I don't know why. Well, because I thought you got to be a sexy detective if you wanted to when you grew up. Yeah. Hello, dream. True. And now I basically am. Yeah, I got the sexy part down <laughs> on just, you know, my body. Well, that does it for Rose. Ripping the remote from Al's hand, she takes a stand for herself and their relationship. When they first started dating and he was still working, she could hardly keep up with his active lifestyle. And now he's become nothing more than a couch potato, a term first brought to the lexicon by friends who had referred to one another as such before creating a 1979 comic of the same name. Is it because potatoes are considered the nothingness of foods? You know, you're as dumb as a sack of potatoes. Or perhaps that the edible portion, according to todayilearn.com, is called a tuber so it related well to the boob tube era of the 70s. Pushing even more, Rose begs Al to realize he has the whole world in front of him. Any dream he wants to achieve but hasn't had the time to do so can happen now. And that dream of his was to retire. That's fair. Running a business is grueling work. She's right that he's earned a life of his dreams, but he's right, if even for just a little while, that that dream is to do nothing. As Rose continues to beg, Al gets frustrated and cancels not only the movies, but the night. It's clear Rose is unsatisfied, and she's even more so when he walks out the door, and she lets out a damn. 
Back in the garage, the team is getting ready to start working on the room. First, Ven has some ground rules. He is the boss, he is the leader, he is the maestro, and like the 1967 Beatles psychedelic classic, he is also the walrus. Goo goo gajoo. What? How does it go? How is it? How, what is the actual? Goo goo gajoo. Is it goo goo gajoo? Well, there's it's differences spelling in the last word because it's not sure if it's like D J O O B or if it's J O O B or if there's like a hyphen. But goo goo gajoo. But confirmed to be goo goo gajoo. Yeah. Goo goo gajoo to you. <laughs> This leaves purple and black flowy blouse wearing Blanche, light yellow and pink Dorothy, and checkered pastel dressed Rose, very confused, but all looking adorable in their little work clothes. Either Sophia is not as accurate with her Italian as she thought, or Vincenzo is a groovy beatnik who is hip to the scene. Right in that moment, they should have maybe thought, hmm, he was just talking and she messed up the translation. Maybe we shouldn't trust her to figure out what he's saying when the details are specific and have to be, like, spot on. No matter, they're off. First step, the worker inspection. Wheeling the man past the bums of the girls, he gives Blanche's booty a little squeeze. It's adorable because he's just an old man twirling his mustache. How harmful and fun. Just kidding. That gets a hearty, oh boy, and he should have received a slap on the face, not an Italians will be Italians. First, the window. Dorothy will hold it, Rose will hammer it, and Blanche will do what she does best, screw. Sophia assures her that that was a direction, not a joke. With just a few words from Vincenzo, Sophia gets specific. Anchors, plywood, studs. I'm with Blanche. I've got the studs part, but that's about it. Just one step in, Sophia is already giving up hope. She can translate all she wants, but if they don't understand the job, even in English, it won't matter. When she presents the hurdle to Vincenzo, he goes with plan, let's see, what are we at now, D? He'll have his crew come and finish the room, and for free. When Blanche can't believe their luck, she wants to know what the catch is. Well, the catch is that Sophia is taking advantage of the fact that he is older and has a declining mental capacity, so we'll all just go with it. Before they can get back to, or I guess started with work, Al pops in, surprising Rose in his dark and light blue windbreaker, and he's got big news. After their heated discussion a few nights prior, he gave her words some thought. What is my life's dream? And finally, he realized what it was, to sail around the world. So... Given the time, money, and opportunity, he has decided to pursue that dream. No rose, he didn't book a cruise, he sold his belongings, cashed out his retirement and the earnings from selling the deli, bought himself a sailboat, and hired a crew. He's going to sail around the world. And since it was her idea, he wants Rose to join him. As Rose's jaw drops in delight, Blanche and Dorothy's drop in excitement for her. Hours later, in the middle of the night, Blanche discovers a yellow floral-robed rose cooking in the kitchen. She, in her purple, black, white, and gray evening ensemble, and Dorothy, in her mauve and white lace nightfit, are curious why she's up. Well, she couldn't sleep, so she's making a traditional Viking snack. Because, as Dorothy points out, when you've been on the high seas, sailing land to land and robbing the homes, assaulting the women, you're bound to get a little snacky. Rose won't have to worry about sharing. The girls are appalled by the stench. But that's good. You know that they're done baking when you're about to puke. 
Even walking the plate towards the girls is too much, and it pushes them away like a negative magnet. Dorothy going so far as to say that the Donner Party, which was composed of over 80 people, over half of which were children, who took their wagons through the Sierra Mountains in Nevada and became stranded due to weather, spending the winter of 1846 and 1847 in the mountains, leading to incidents of cannibalism. And they still would have consumed each other before trying her little treat. In the end, 45 members of the party survived. But will Dorothy survive trying the Verhurderbrod and Crispy? Rose doesn't disagree with any of this because she knows it's all about technique and salesmanship. She shows the girls, if you plug your nose to block the smell, you'll get an explosion of flavors, like how her crispy tastes like ice cream, cheesecake, and strawberries. Blanche is sold, so with a plug of the nose, she pops one and loves it, even saying it's the best thing she's ever eaten. Even Dorothy gives it a try. When a blue house dress wearing Sophia comes in and finds everyone holding their noses, she gets defensive. There is no way they can smell her fart from the hallway. Sophia doesn't get to try a treat because Rose is upset again. Pulling a rose of her own, Blanche asks if it's because of Al, giving Dorothy the opportunity to say, no, she's upset because Jimmy Swagger, the then-famous televangelist, was busted in a scandal involving a sex worker, and now he can't pay his hotel bill. This all took place in 88, so this joke is quite timely. What the girls didn't know is that later he would again be busted for hiring a sex worker. This would lead to him taking control of his own, less popular ministry. Then in 1991, he was once again picked up with a sex worker. You may have seen his iconic I have sinned speech, given shortly after his first transgression. I have sinned against you, my Lord. And I would ask that your precious blood would wash and cleanse every stain until it is in the seas of God's forgetfulness. Thank you. Thank you. And God bless you. With a little seat shuffling, we're back to the matter at hand. What will Rose do about Al? Giggling, Dorothy says she would love to get to sail around the world with a man, leading to Sophia scoffing at the idea. Sail around the world? How about you get through a coffee date? The amount of men wanting to take her around the world must be around the block. Screaming for her mother to stop reminding her of her dating abilities, Sophia finally gives up. Back to Rose, again. She's realizing that she's starting to feel guilty. Al wasn't doing anything before, and he's only doing this now because she got spicy with him. Blanche doesn't see that as something for Rose to worry about. Even if he's only doing it because of what she said, he's at least doing something. A something Rose can participate in as well. So who cares about responsibilities? You can just get on a boat and go see the world. Be wild. Be spontaneous. Rose would love to do that, but in St. Olaf, all 15-year-olds sign a pledge to not be impulsive. It keeps houses from being painted outrageous colors. While the talk with the girls has been helpful, Rose will just need to sleep on the idea before making a decision. Talking about sleep surprisingly sets Sophia off. Here she is, always having to comfort the girls and talk about their sex lives. What about her sex problem? Which is that she isn't getting any. Making things worse, she just read about how a woman's sexual peak is 83 years old. But Blanche read that same article and the number was actually 33. Sophia apologizes. 
The burning in her loins must be due to the chronic digestive disease involving inflammation of the colon, colitis. With a fart, frustration, and colon reference, Sophia is out of here, heading back to bed. It's a new dawn, a new day, and the garage is full of elderly men, trying their best, walkers and all, to get the remodel done. Taking a look around, Dorothy feels it looks more like the touring cast of the 1985 film Cocoon. Fun fact, Wilford Brimley was only 49 years old at the time, but he played alongside other elders, like 76-year-old Donna Michi, 75-year-old Jessica Tandy, 73-year-old Hume Cronin, and 76-year-old Jack Guilford. But these men aren't part of Cocoon, nor are they the lesser-known Osmond brothers, siblings to Donnie and Marie, Verl, Tom, Alan, Wayne, Merrill, Jay, and Jimmy. With an adorable cream crochet sweater with flowers and a yellow blouse with an oversized bow at her neck, Sophia demands that Dorothy, in gray pants, a cream sweater, and pink windbreaker, and Blanche, wearing a vertically striped dark blue and light blue ensemble, need to be more respectful to the men who are there to help. Rose, dressed in a very light seafoam green, apologizes for interrupting and forgetting the Vincenzo plan. She's been distracted, thinking about Al's offer of sailing. Lucky for her, Vinny has something to say about her situation. As he speaks in Italian, Sophia starts asking everyone to picture Sicily. And even though she may struggle with some of the language barrier, she is getting every word of Vincenzo's story. A young architect isn't sure if he should risk traveling or staying home where he's safe. The lesson, a life lived without risk, is no life at all. For once, Sophia's story, because it was hers, she's the philosopher after all, actually helped. And Rose has come to a decision. She is going to sail the world with Al. Once Rose has left, the girls ask if that was really what Vincenzo had said. Of course it wasn't. What he had said was for everyone else to leave. Because of their bad vision, the men were getting distracted by the ladies, who in their eyes were looking like hot, young, fit, blonde airline attendants. It's been long enough for Rose to make plans to rearrange her life and for Al to have his ship ready to sail, because it's their bon voyage party. Blanche has shown up in head-to-toe magenta, Sophia in a beautiful deep blue dress, and Dorothy is wearing... clothes. More specifically, it's a brown pantsuit, but not like a nice, rich brown, rather the kind with like a hint of green, like baby poo. At the top of the blouse is a lace collar. At the cuffs of the sleeves and decorating the pockets at the bottom of the cardigan is a white and floral print, or maybe it's more lace from the collar. It's probably for the best that this one didn't make a lot of reoccurring appearances. Sophia comes in a bit behind the girls, blaming them for leaving her at the dock at night. Scoffing at Sophia's blanket stereotype comment, Dorothy points out that they aren't at docks like shipping yards. They're at a dock for yachts and sailing boats. Those people aren't around, which is disappointing for Sophia, who is hoping to score Dorothy a date. As they get back to picking at the hors d'oeuvres, Ellen comes bursting onto the deck with an ahoy. You really got a two-headed snake? I sure do. Want to see it? Mm-hmm. Cost you a dime. Okay. Once again, my apologies, that is actually Rose, who in all green is elated to hit the high seas. Luckily, the deli allotted for a hefty payout for Al, since he apparently purchased the largest, fanciest sailboat on water. With stairs, tables, and an ornately decorated interior, I'm thinking this might be more of a yacht. I've only been on one sailboat that was used as a person's home, but it was not exactly fancy. But it was a hoot. 
Celebrating the big night, the girls pop some champagne as Rose heads off to find Al. Blanche is only concerned about the champagne, while Dorothy is concerned she'll get frisky as bubbles lead to her kissing any man in sight. Cue a splash in the water and a hollering of, Man overboard! Surely that's nothing more than a coincidence. Making her way through the rooms and tables of guests, Rose finds Al and tells him how happy and honored she is to not only get to have this adventure, but to be the one who he chose to share this part of his life with. She loves him and the life that they are about to have. They'll never be lost because they'll have each other and the North Star. Guess Rose never got a badge for constellations. As she points to the star, Al informs her that that's simply the radio tower for the Spanish station. Brushing off her navigation mistake, she jokes that the antenna is even more reliable than a star, leading Al to warn her that he's going to puke. Well, geez, her joke wasn't that bad. Except it isn't the joke that has him nauseated. It's because he suffers from kinetosis or seasickness, something I've experienced on a boat and in a plane, and in every car ever. Fun fact, while there is an understanding that it's the discrepancy of your eyes being fixated on a non-moving object while your inner ear senses movement that causes motion sickness, there is a theory that it's an evolutionary development to protect us from being poisoned or eating poisoned food. Since your brain is like, why are you telling me we're not moving when I can totally feel we're moving, it assumes that you must have eaten something bad, causing hallucinations, which makes your brain tell your stomach to barf up whatever berries or leaves we've harvested. Gotta love that the brain can do all of that, but when we talk to it to be like, no, it's okay, we didn't eat anything, it's just waves. It's like, nope, sorry, still a cave person brain here, it's berries, we gotta puke. Realizing he can't even handle being in port, let alone out at sea, Al comes to the conclusion that sailing won't be right for him. Seems odd he hadn't been out on a boat either from A, living in Miami, or B, you know, buying one with his life savings. I really love Betty's acting here. You can hear the devastation and disappointment in her voice. There's even a dash of, I knew he wouldn't do this. But she pushes through those feelings to comfort and support him reminding him of the huge steps he'd taken over the few weeks just to try something new. Trying to make him feel better by naming off the other things they can do together, the first that comes to Rose's mind is Space Mountain, one of my favorites, in Disney World. Forgetting her lover is sick to his stomach, she then goes into great detail of all of the drops and curves of the roller coaster. This, of course, leads to vomit overboard from Al. Seeing where she went wrong, Rose then suggests they just walk the park and get photos with characters. The couple has survived the great sailing disaster and are still dating, but only on land. Showing off her multicolored pastel dress with black outlines, Rose is excited to share that she's off on a date with Al to go hear the Philharmonic in the park. This isn't due to anyone's love of music and culture, but because Al loves creeping around checking out what meats are popular for the picnic season. Scurrying in in a yellow pant and sweater combo with a blue undershirt is Sophia, who is excited to share that Vincenzo has announced he and the team have completed the garage. Delighted to see the final result, Dorothy in khakis and a greenish-gray top and a coral blanche run back in with her. Arriving in the garage, they find... a garage. When Dorothy and Blanche are disgusted, Rose tries to find the positives, like how they could decorate it to give the drab concrete some life. But the problem isn't that it isn't a cute room. The problem is that it isn't a room at all. It's a cleaned out version of their garage. 
Giving Lady Gaga and Jared Leto's a what for, Sophia then asks Vincenzo in Italian, What the hell happened? Stanza de Leto. You didn't ask for a bedroom? Welp, it was, in a classically Italian way, a mix-up. Given that every area of Italy, down to the individual, uses their own version of the language, this tends to happen. Which is why the Italian army, which has had its issues in the successful fighters division, is as competent as the Jamaican bobsled team. The original team, which appeared in the 1988 Olympics and was represented in 1993 in the beloved film Cool Runnings, wasn't great. Due to a crash, they didn't officially complete their runs. They did return in 92, finishing 25th, and in 94, they were 14th. Now look in the mirror and tell me what you see. You see Junior. You see Junior. Well, you want to know what I see? I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother who don't take no crap of nobody. Having another exchange with Vincenzo, he apologizes for the mistake and is willing to bring his crew back in for free to make it a bedroom. Blanche shuts that idea down immediately. This has been a weeks-long hassle. We are not dealing with it again. So Sophia thanks him and proceeds to accidentally give him Dorothy's hand in marriage. Sophia can't be concerned with how horrified Dorothy is at the idea. She's just pleased she'll end up with an Italian. This episode was a perfect example of why B ended up leaving the show. The jokes about her getting dates are brutal. From Sophia's incessant judgment and disgust with her daughter, to the man diving off the boat, to the resolution being the only man who would want her would be Vincenzo. Yeesh and oh boy to it all. Outside of the attacks on Dorothy, Rose's story was sweet and important. The idea of retirement, well, there used to be one, now we've all just come to terms with the earth dying before we could worry about retirement age, but I digress. There's no wrong way to retire. For Al, he had worked really hard for a really long time. He was ready for a break, a chance to do nothing. That doesn't mean Rose pushing him to do more adventurous things was bad, but it's probably why we don't see Al again. Rose didn't see retirement or her older age as a time to do less. She saw it as a time to continue living the life she wants, and that's okay too. Most importantly, Rose and Al tried. She voiced her desires. He went after his dream. It isn't a failure if you tried and it didn't work out. The only failure would have been to have never chased their dreams in the first place. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we talk blackface versus mud masks in Mixed Blessings. Dorothy is utilizing her all-powerful mother-teacher index pointer. Index pointer. She woke up on the wrong side of a bid. Bid. You could just use the barrel as like a transportation for the body. (laughs) We got them over the barrel, but now they're in the barrel. Sorry. The barrels do not work. (laughs) Please don't sue us. (laughs) Well, yeah, it'd be like what actually happened at that keg party. She went down to the marina to meet up with so-and-so. And And then the keg came out. It just sounds like a dangerous situation. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid of what that what happened there. She wasn't. In all, ooh, sorry, I I said ooh instead of ow because I flicked the table with the back of my nails. Okay. Ooh. Ew. I mean ow. <laughs>
That pain was gross. Lox is a filet of brine salmon. Salmon. Do you say that's tight? Yeah. <laughs> that that's tight. That's a tight fact. It's tight. It's not even fun. It's tight. It's tight. Money. Oh God. Oof. It's shagadelic. <laughs> <laughs> we are just in high school with each other. It's pretty nice. <laughs> We just have to do homework all day, every day. It really does suck. <laughs> <laughs> she suggests they burn the garage to the ground. Damn. Gilligan's Island, Hogan's Hero. Z. Gilligan's Island, Hogan's Heroes. Wait. Hogan, he Hogan's Heroes. Okay. <laughs> Hogan's Hero. Gil Gilligan Island. <laughs> Gilligan Islands. The Brady person. Brady Bunches. Hey. <laughs> If you're a fan, don't fret. <laughs> the blouse was really nice, very flattering on her figure, but it could have been worn with, well, literally anything else. No bottoms. And I. <laughs> what? Uh... And like the 1967 Beatles psychedelic classic, he is also the walrus. Is it goo? Goo goo gajoob. Goo goo jaboob? Goo goo gajoob. Like that. With just a few words from Vincenzo. Vincenzo. Wow, really? Yep. Okay. Who took their wagons? Wagons. <laughs> when a blue dress wearing Sophia pops in. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Given shortly after his first trans. But these men aren't part of Cocoon, no, or... There is a theory that it's an evolutionarily developed... Hmm. There's a theory that it's an... <laughs> Gotta love that the brain can do all of that. But when we talk... <laughs> but then I sound like this. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.